Amen. A couple years ago, I worked for the YMCA. I did before and after school care at a school. And the thing that they didn't tell me about the job that I wish I would have known was that you deal with a lot of injuries, deal with a lot of cuts, bruises, bumps, many, many tears. And I didn't realize that I would have to get a CNA or a nursing degree in order to watch kids before and after school. And in the several months that I did that job, I saw some just incredible injuries that I never thought I would have to deal with. My first morning that I was in charge, where I didn't have the person that was training me there, and I was in charge of the whole site, a boy threw up all over the place, and I had to find the janitor who had just gotten there. I had to make sure that everybody else was out of the room. There was one day that there was a girl on the playground. Somehow her hair had gotten caught on her tongue, and she couldn't move her mouth. Now, how did she do that? I have no idea. But when I called her mom, her mom didn't believe me. She thought I was crazy until she came and she apologized. She said, I thought you were making it up. She really does have her hair caught on her tongue. They had to take her to the urgent care where they, yeah, did something to it. Uh, at some point at the YMCA, a child ran into a pole and didn't cry. He looked like he was fine. Then he moved his hand from his head and he had a giant goose egg on top of his forehead that we got to put ice on. There was a child that decided to pull her own tooth. And when she came to show me, there was blood flowing down everywhere for me to see. And my favorite is not a necessarily medical injury, but every time a kid would fall and they would say that they hurt their leg... And as I would watch them, they would change which leg was hurting. They'd start limping on one leg, and all of a sudden you look at them and they'd start limping on another leg. And what that takes is something that's called triage. Now, if you go to the ER, you see a triage nurse, and she's going to decide how much pain you're actually in and what level of care you need and how quickly they're going to deal with your problem. I didn't realize this, but I needed to make those decisions at that point. Sometimes you've got multiple children that have been hurt at the same time. Now, I ran a clean operation. It wasn't like I was purposely trying to see these kids get hurt. This is just the reality of working with kids. But you have to decide, okay, is this kid really sick? Are they faking it? The boy who threw up, he told me he was sick to his stomach. I just didn't believe him. And he showed me that I was wrong. He showed me that he was actually sick. You have to be able to discern which injuries are more important and which injuries can wait. We all recognize that there's various types of injuries we can face in the same way theologically what I want us to see today is that there's different issues we're going to run into. Some are more important than others. Some need different care than others. We're going to see in these 30-some verses that are here in Acts 18 and Acts 19, Paul's going to deal with a various variety of theological issues. He's going to have a lot of different things that he tries to work through with the church in Ephesus, and he doesn't deal with them all the same. He doesn't just have a one-stop answer, a band-aid solution, but he handles each of these issues differently. In the same way, we today deal with a variety of different issues in the culture, in the church, and even just in our lives. If you were to come to me one day and you said that I don't agree with you on who wrote the book of Hebrews, I probably wouldn't have a big... I would probably wouldn't make a big deal about it because no one really knows who wrote that book. There's a lot of different opinions on it. If you came to me and said, I don't, or I think I have a different opinion on who the sons of God are in Genesis 6, well, 
That's a big debate. That's not something that is uniform. It's not something that God's word clearly shows us. But if you came to me and said, I don't believe Jesus is the son of God, then we would have a discussion about that because that's a big deal. That is something that needs immediate care. And in the same way, discernment is needed with dealing with theological confusion. Sometimes in the church, people have genuine questions. They're confused. Maybe they're a new believer and they just don't understand and they have a question and we respond harshly. We respond without care. We respond in a way that really quenches their spirit and really puts them down. And that's not the way that we see Paul respond here in Acts 18. It takes discernment to deal with different issues and not just theological issues. It takes discernment to deal with different spiritual issues as well. Let's say you were struggling with depression. It probably wouldn't help you if I treated you like you were a kleptomaniac and you were stealing different things. If you were struggling with assurance of your salvation, I probably wouldn't give you a book on the reality of a place called hell. There's different issues that we even face spiritually, and they need different care and different types of responses. And I believe we see that from the Apostle Paul. In the same way that an ER doctor wisely knows what to do when someone comes with certain symptoms, we also must use care when dealing with theological confusion. So we see, as I've mentioned, Paul, Aquila, and Priscilla deal with theological confusion on different levels here in Acts 18 and Acts 19. And there's a variety of different issues that they face. There's a variety of different issues that we face in our lives as well. We see Paul in the city of Ephesus. This was really a high point in his ministry for this reason. This is going to be the longest span of time he's going to be able to spend in one place, freely able to preach without being in prison. We know that there were other cities that Paul went to and he was ran out of town because of persecution. Paul stayed in Ephesus for almost three years and was able to preach the gospel there and teach others about Christ. So we see this is really a high point in his ministry, but even in the highs, he deals with different challenges with theological confusion. And so what I want us to see today is a question. I want us to answer this question. How should believers address theological confusion? What should we do when different people come to us with questions and concerns about who God is, about what salvation is? We're going to look at three different ways that we should deal with this. The first thing I want us to see is that we should gently instruct confused believers. We should gently instruct confused believers. Let's look at verses 24 through 28 of chapter 18. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Apollos is introduced here in the book of Acts. He is mentioned about seven or eight more times in the New Testament. And we learn a few things about him here. He's from Alexandria. This was the Roman seat in Egypt. So he was from the nation of Egypt. But he probably had done some traveling. We see that he's an eloquent man. He was trained. He had education. He was probably a very, very good public speaker. He's someone that you would listen to and all of a sudden you would think, wow, that is just a great speaker. He's very good with his words. He's an eloquent man. And look at what else it says. He is competent in the scriptures. He really knows his Bible well. He really understands his Bible well. This word competent it comes from the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our word for dynamite. It doesn't just mean competent. It also means that he was powerful. 
He had a powerful way of explaining the scriptures. When you listen to him, you just are blown away by what you see from him. He had the capacity to do great things with his preaching. Look at verse 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. This instructed comes from the Greek word katecheo. It's where we get the word for catechism. You know, you have the question and answer that some other more, I guess, high church denominations use. It's called a catechism. And it'll give you a question and then you'll provide with an answer that you memorize. It's a great way to learn different truths about scripture. Apollos had been catechized. He'd understood the way of the Lord. Now, what is the way of the Lord? We see in the Old Testament, there's a way that the children of Israel should follow. In the Psalms, there's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And then think about John the Baptist. What was he doing? He was preparing the way of the Lord. And we're going to see a connection between Apollos and between John the Baptist as well and how they understand the way of the Lord. But we also see that in the book of Acts, the church, the Christian movement, is called the way. So I don't just think, and this is going to become more important later, I think that Apollos was a Christian. There's a lot of people that disagree with me on that. They think that he's unsaved. I really do think Apollos is a Christian, and I'm going to explain why here as we go through these verses. He's instructed, first of all, in the way of the Lord, which I think is not just the Old Testament, but also the way of Christ. Notice what else it says. He says he's fervent in spirits. This Greek word is where we get the word for zealous. He's excited. He's on fire. In fact, it even can mean that you are boiling or seething over. He's just that person that is just with, has so much energy. Have you met a person like that? They just wake up and they're going and they're excited and they're just ready to conquer to the day. And you're thinking, I need a couple more cups of coffee before I can really match this person's enthusiasm. This is how Apollos was. He was zealous, excited. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. And look at what else it says. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Christ. So he had passion. He had charisma. He was bold. He has all these things going for him. And he understands who Jesus is. Now, a lot of people want to say that Apollos isn't a Christian, that he's a Jew, that he doesn't understand who Christ is yet. But that's not what I think Luke is saying here. He says he speaks accurately the things of Jesus, not just who Jesus was predicted to be. But I think Apollos really understood who Christ was. I think he was a believer. He knew the gospel. He knew what Jesus had done for sin. He'd accepted him as Savior. He was accurate in those things. But... We see all these great things about Apollos. We see that he's an eloquent man. He's competent. He's powerful in the scriptures. So he's well taught. He's well spoken. He has charisma. He has power. He knows Christ and is teaching on him well. What's the only drawback? It says he spoke accurately the things concerning Christ, though he only knew the baptism of John. That seems to be the one drawback that Luke gives us to Apollos. He's a great man. He's powerful in his preaching. He knows the scriptures well. But what does it mean that he only knows the baptism of John? What was the baptism of John? It's the baptism of John the Baptist. We know that in the Gospels, he was preparing the way of the Lord and people were getting baptized. And it's called a baptism of repentance. Now, what they would do is they would come to John the Baptist and they would confess their sins, they would repent, 
And they weren't saved with the baptism of John, but it was a way of preparing them for Christ. It was pretty revivalistic, honestly, in the way that they were preparing for Christ to come. And we see that Christ was baptized as well. John says, I'm not worthy of Jesus. I'm not worthy to tie his sandals for him. And Jesus has John baptize him as well in what's either the end of his private ministry or the beginning of his public ministry, however you view that event. And so this was the baptism of John. He had a great many disciples that followed him. And Apollos apparently had learned of John's baptism, this baptism of repentance. But what does it mean he only knows John's baptism? It could be that he doesn't understand believer's baptism, that he doesn't understand the sign of believer's baptism. We don't think as a church that baptism saves you, but we believe it is a sign of your faith, a symbol of your faith, that it shows your faith publicly to others. Or, and I think Luke is hinting at the second option, it could mean that he doesn't understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, which Schaefer is talking about in Sunday school. I know we'll talk about it more next week. In the life of a believer, when you are saved, the Holy Spirit baptizes you. Now, not like physically necessarily. He's not dunking you in water. But spiritually, he's setting you apart and making you more like Christ, even in that moment. So that is the baptism of the Spirit. And we seem to, to learn here in this passage that Apollos doesn't quite understand that. That he doesn't quite have a grasp on that. Now, a lot of people want to look at that and they say, well, Apollos couldn't have been a believer. Let me ask you something. How many of you, by show of hands, understood the baptism of the Holy Spirit right at the moment when you were saved? If there are any hands, it might just be one or two. I did not understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit when I was first saved. And I don't think Apollos did either. And that's okay. I think he was a believer, but he was misguided. Now, we said about Apollos, he's charismatic. He's competent in the scriptures. He is a powerful speaker. He's zealous and on fire. But he has wrong doctrine. And this is not something to ignore. In fact, Apollos misunderstanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit would, would be dangerous for the church. And we're going to see the result of that here later. There are good people who I think preach the word of God, who even know the gospel, but I think they're misguided in different areas. And sometimes it can be the best people who are misguided, but they're good speakers, they're charismatic, they're eloquent, and they can be really dangerous for the church. Because they're really great at leading people and getting people to follow them, but they're just not going in the right way. And so this is something that the church has to deal with. This is something that they need to figure out. In fact, look at that next verse in verse 26. It says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. So Apollos is starting to speak. And as you can imagine, a guy who's charismatic, a guy who's passionate, a lot of people are listening to him. And they're thinking, he's a good speaker. He knows who Christ is. He's competent in the scriptures. But he starts talking about baptism and red flags go up. And they start realizing this guy doesn't quite understand what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. So what happens? How would, how would you respond if someone in our church started preaching and they started preaching something that you know isn't true? Maybe they're saved, but you just know isn't accurate. Well, we could respond in a lot of ways. We could be harsh. You could throw tomatoes at them. You could make fun of them. You could gossip about them. There's so many different responses that we actually see in the church today 
That's not what Aquila and Priscilla did. Do you see what they did? He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I think this is a great example from Aquila and Priscilla. We met them last week in Corinth in Acts 18. They were tent makers just like Paul was. They could have had a very harsh response to Apollos. They could have publicly confronted Apollos in front of the entire congregation. That's not what they did. They took him aside and they said, this is the way of God. This is what spirit baptism is. This is what you need to understand. They showed him a more excellent way is what some translations will say. They were gentle. They were gentle, but they spoke the truth. And many times in our churches today, we can go in one of two different ways. You can find people who are very loving and maybe they overlook false doctrine. Maybe they overlook people who aren't speaking the truth. Or you find people that are very harsh and they're very confrontational. And maybe they're even gossiping about someone who's not speaking the truth. And Aquila and Priscilla do what I think we should do with believers facing theological confusion. They're gentle, but they're honest. And they show them a more excellent way. We can't blame Apollos too much because no one had been in his life. No one had discipled him to the point where he was able to understand who Jesus was, what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was. We see that this is what Aquila and Priscilla do. And look at verse 27. This is again why I think he was a believer. We don't see a conversion or repentance. We don't see him baptized. We don't see any notion that he was saved at that moment because I believe he was already saved. We just see him go on and preach the gospel. In verse 27 it says, And when he wished to cross into Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. Achaia was where Corinth and was where Greece was over on the other side. It was further west. And so Apollos wants to go there. He wants to be able to minister the word to these people there. And the people in Ephesus encourage him. They don't say, oh, you were wrong before. They encourage him to go there. In fact, they write to the believers in Corinth where Apollos would go. And they greatly help him get over there. Look at what it says. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you see that Apollos had a powerful ministry in the city of Corinth. He was able to explain the word and help the believers there very well. Look at verse 28. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. You see what happens when someone who's been confused, who doesn't quite understand, is corrected in the right way. He wasn't discouraged. He didn't lose his fervent spirit. He didn't lose his zealousness. He was able to continue preaching, and he was able to greatly help the church of God. I think Aquila and Priscilla are a great example for us and how we can deal with believers, young believers maybe in their faith, who don't quite understand everything there is to know about the Bible. But what does it take? It takes discernment. It takes maturity. It takes gentleness. It takes reason. When I was a freshman in high school, I had knee surgery. I'd torn cartilage from my knee, and I was very nervous going into that surgery because I knew it was going to be a somewhat long operation, and they were going to have to open my knee up. 
And so I was sitting in the hospital bed. I was waiting for them to take me back. And the nurse came into my room, knocked on the door, and said, Daquan, we're ready to take you back for your surgery. Now, my name is not Daquan. It's Lance. And I realized that they were going to take me back for a surgery, and I had no idea what they were going to do to me at that moment. They might have had an organ transplant. They might have had something to do with lungs. I did not want to go back for that surgery. And by the way, I did not really feel comfortable with whoever was going to come back and take me when it was my time to go. I can remember my mom when the nurse said that. She kind of stepped in front of me and almost guarded me from them taking me back because she didn't know what they were going to do with me. It takes the right understanding, the right wisdom to be able to discern as a nurse who needs what surgery and what needs to be done during that knee surgery. I was really amazed during that process with my doctor and how she understood just how the knee works, how the cartilage breaking off was affecting my ability to walk, and even how I could grow cartilage back in my knee through that process. In the same way, we need good discernment, we need wisdom, and how to handle people who have different issues, who maybe believe different things. Like I said earlier, generally Christians can fall into two different categories. We either don't say anything because we don't want to offend someone, or we end up saying too much, or we say it in the wrong way. Apollos was gifted, charismatic, zealous, and he was also dangerous to the church. If not corrected, this could have caused a lot more issues than it did. And we're about to see that it actually did cause some more issues here in Acts 19. We must be willing to have hard and sometimes difficult conversations, but we should have them in love. Too often I see believers today falling into just remarkable pitfalls when it comes to when it comes to confronting and correcting other believers who have different doctrine. Sometimes we see people and they believe something different and we can start gossiping about them. We can start name calling, cursing. I've seen physical fights, social media wars, just a few ways where believers don't handle their differences with gentleness and love. Aquila and Priscilla could have been more harsh towards Apollos. Instead, they just took him aside and they showed him a more accurate way. And for believers in Jesus Christ, for us as a church, my prayer for us is that we would be like Aquila and Priscilla, that we would learn gentleness and patience, recognizing that we all have room to grow. Sometimes when you're helping a young believer, someone who maybe doesn't quite understand everything that you do, it's helpful for us to remember what we were like when we were first saved. We didn't understand everything either, and we made mistakes. And so therefore, we can have grace, we can be patient, and help others grow. Let's look secondly, we not only need to gently instruct confused believers, we also need to carefully witness to unbelievers. I not only think that we see believers here, but in chapter 19, we see unbelievers. And look with me at this scene when Paul comes to Ephesus in verse 1 of chapter 19. And it happened that while Paulus was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. So remember, Paul had gone back to Jerusalem. He finished his Nazarite vow. He updated the churches in that area. And then he comes back to Ephesus. He'd wanted to come back to Ephesus. And this is the beginning of his third missionary journey. Now, in the first and second missionary journeys that Paul took, we see him traveling around the cities in Asia Minor and in Macedonia and in Achaia 
In his third missionary journey, he's going to spend a lot of time in Ephesus. So we see there on the map that he goes to the city of Ephesus. And when he gets there, it says he found some disciples. So he goes back. Maybe he talked to Aquila and Priscilla. Maybe he hadn't found them yet. He might have just found these disciples on the street. And look at verse 2. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, I think there's probably more that Paul said. He didn't just walk up to someone and say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? But he probably was talking to them. And maybe he got the vibe that they didn't understand the Holy Spirit, that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. And look at what they say. And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. They said, it's not just that we didn't receive the Holy Spirit. We didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Now, it could be that they didn't understand that he had come. We know that the Spirit is talked about in the Old Testament. But look at how Paul responds. He says, and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. I think there's a reason Luke gives us these two passages. These were probably people who had heard Apollos' teaching and not understood the Holy Spirit. Apollos didn't understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but we're never told that he didn't have the Holy Spirit. We never see him receive the Holy Spirit later. But this is why it was dangerous for Apollos to not be instructed in the accurate way with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because now you see these disciples of John the Baptist who really don't understand the Holy Spirit. They didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. And they were baptized with John's baptism. I mentioned earlier that John the Baptist prepared the way of the Lord. He baptized with a baptism of repentance, preparing people for Christ to come. Look at what Paul says in, in verse 4. He says as much. He says, And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is, Jesus. So Paul explains to them, he says that John had a baptism of repentance, but he's pointing to Christ. It's not just about John and his repentance that he talked about, but John's baptism pointed to Jesus who would come. And John said, I baptize with water. He will baptize with fire and the Holy Spirit. And I believe here Paul explains the gospel to them. And notice what it says in verse 5. And on believing, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So Paul explains to them, I believe, the gospel. They're baptized, and then they receive the Holy Spirit as well. Now, you might find it interesting how they receive the Holy Spirit. You might say, when I was saved, no one laid hands on me, and I didn't start speaking in tongues, and I didn't start prophesying. Well, that's probably good. I think that this is a unique situation here in Ephesus. It was a unique display of the Holy Spirit to show that these believers had the Holy Spirit. Remember that Acts is a transitional time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's where the Spirit comes. We've seen the Spirit act in this way in several other times with the Jews at Pentecost. People spoke in tongues. People prophesied, I believe, to show that those believers received the Holy Spirit. Then in Samaria and Judea, they started speaking in tongues as well. I believe again to show that they'd received the Holy Spirit. And then with Cornelius in Acts 10, they started speaking in tongues to show that the Gentiles had the Spirit as well. So it's not to say that every believer who is saved 
is going to have hands laid on them and they're going to start speaking in tongues. But in this moment, the question was, would these believers have the Holy Spirit? There were questions about that. And so the Spirit manifests itself by speaking in tongues and by prophesying. So we see that Paul shares the gospel with them. They understand John's baptism. They understand the baptism of the Spirit, and they're saved. And in verse 7 it says, And there were about 12 men in all. So Paul carefully witnesses to these unbelievers. And notice also he's going to continue to preach the gospel in the synagogue. Look at verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and for about three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, Paul has said over and over again in his ministry, he preaches to the Jews then the Jews make him mad. And he says, you know what? I'm done with the Jews. I'm not going to speak to him anymore. Now, what does he do here? He goes back to the synagogue. He continues preaching to the Jews and he uses this as a launching point to spread the gospel in the city of Ephesus. And he says he does this for three months. He's boldly reasoning. What does that mean? He's having conversations. He's showing the reasons for why we believe what we believe. And he's persuading them about the kingdom of God. We see that there's people saved. They understand the gospel. Look at verse 9. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them. So Paul is witnessing and he said some were just stubborn. They would not believe They would not repent. And it came to the point where it was actually detrimental to the body of Christ. And so what does Paul do? He steps away from them. It says he steps away from them. He withdrew from them and took disciples with them, reasoning daily from the hall of Tyrannus. So not only does he leave, he takes the people who had become Christians and they go to this place called the Hall of Tyrannus. It was a school, a lecture hall that Paul could rent. He would speak there from 11 a.m. to probably 4 p.m. every day. And he would teach people the gospel and about the Christian faith. So that's what he would do. That He would do four or five hour lectures every day. Now imagine if my sermons were four or five hours. We would have a very, much smaller church than we have right now. But he's continuing to speak. He's continuing to instruct people. And it says in verse 10, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word, both Jews and Greeks. So we see even Paul is dealing with various types of unbelievers. In verses 1 through 7, he deals with people who have heard a gospel, but maybe it wasn't the complete gospel. And he has to show them what the gospel is and they're saved. In verses 8 through 10, some believe Paul when he preaches the gospel. Others are stubborn and they won't continue on and they're actually becoming an obstacle to the church. And so Paul withdraws from them. Whenever I see that word stubborn, I think of my dog. Sometimes he'll go outside and if I'm cooking and we set off the smoke alarms, he'll run outside and he won't come back in because he's afraid I'm going to burn the house down. And I cannot get him to come to me no matter what. And he'll just stay outside for an hour, two hours, and I'll just tell him, I'll say, you're going to sleep out here all night because you won't come inside and because I can't grab him and bring him inside. He's too fast for me. And so it's a battle of stubbornness between me and my dog trying to figure out which one is going to outlast the other one. And I'll tell Alicia, I'm just going to leave him out there all night. He's not going to come inside. And she says, you're not going to leave that dog out there. You know, you're going to go get him. 
And eventually, he breaks and he comes inside. But there have been several moments where I've just thought, I should just leave him outside for the night and see how he likes it then. But I always go back. I always chase him around and he comes inside. I usually put peanut butter on my hands and he comes inside after that. So we see that Paul is able to use discernment here in witnessing to unbelievers. Some would believe. Some would respond right away. And others he just knew were stubborn. Now, it doesn't mean that they couldn't ever get saved. But in that moment, Paul realized that it wasn't worth continuing to preach to them if they were not repenting. In the same way as we share the gospel with people, some will respond right away. Some take a while to preach the gospel to. Paul didn't just leave right away when they said no. But for three months, he continued speaking the gospel to them. And some were saved, some it says were persuaded, and others were stubborn and didn't believe. We see Paul was careful to witness to these unbelievers. But we see a third category. There's some believers who need to be gently instructed in the way of the Lord. They know Jesus, they're saved, they understand the gospel. They just need someone to take them aside and correct their thinking, show them what they need to believe and love. Some unbelievers need to be carefully witnessed to. We need to share the gospel with them. But lastly, we see that we should sharply rebuke false teachers. There's a third group of people that we meet here in Ephesus. A third story that Luke decides to tell us. And it's quite the event that happens. Look at verse 11. It says, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So Paul was in the city. It says he was doing miracles. He was healing people. He was casting out demons. Look at the extent of this in verse 12. It says, So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. So Paul was healing people to the extent that these handkerchiefs, now these were probably like sweat rags that went on top of your head or that touched his skin in some way. They'd take these cloths that had touched Paul and they would bring them to the sick and immediately when they would touch them, they would be healed. Now this isn't to say that if I'm wearing a hat, you guys should take my hat and go give it to someone who's sick and they're immediately going to be healed. But this shows us the healing power of God. Not Paul, but God. Look at verse 11. It says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It's very clear how these things were happening. It was not Paul, but it was God through Paul healing other people, doing these powerful miracles. Now, I don't think there's anything special about the clothes Paul was wearing. It was rather just the grace that God gave others to be healed through these different things that Paul was doing. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. So we see that there's some Jewish men who were exorcists. This was something that some Jewish priests would do. They would cast out demons, or at least try to cast out demons. Luke uses the word itinerant here. This means to go around, to wander around, to just go around looking for something. If Mac hides his bone somewhere, he'll walk around the house and look for it all over the place. 
So what these priests were doing, they were going around looking for people who had demons. And look at what they said. They said, I adjure you in the name of Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. They're trying to cast out demons in the name of Christ. Now, what's interesting about this is that they were not Christians. It doesn't say they were Christian exorcists. It says they were Jewish exorcists. So what does that mean? They didn't believe that Jesus was the Christ. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but they knew what? That the name of Jesus was casting out demons. So while they didn't know Jesus, they were still trying to speak in the name of Jesus. And while they weren't disciples of Jesus and they didn't know Paul, they were still trying to use the power that Paul seemed to have. In verse 14, they're identified. It says they're the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva that were doing this. So these sons of this priest were walking around. They didn't know who Jesus was, but they were still trying to speak in the name of Jesus. And in verse 15, it says, but the evil spirit answered. Now, I don't cast out demons. I'm not an exorcist. I would know the first thing to do in this situation. But if I were to ever try and the demons started speaking to me, I would run. I would not want anything to do. And I would never try to cast out another demon ever again. Because look at what it says. It says, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. Now, Jesus had cast out demons, right? That was part of his ministry. He cast out demons. He healed people. And the demons were afraid of Christ. Every time you see Christ cast out a demon, they run away afraid. In fact, they run into pigs at one point and go drown themselves in the lake just to get away from Christ. We know that demons are opposed to Jesus, but they do believe in Jesus. They know that God exists. They know that Christ exists. And they understand the power of them. So they say, Jesus, I know. And look at what also it says. It says in Paul... I recognize. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul had any power by himself, but it does mean that they knew that Paul was casting out demons, and they at least respected that. They at least knew that Paul was speaking in the power of Christ. But look at what they say to the priests here. Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? Pretty much saying, I know these other two people, but we don't know who you are. And in reality, they're saying, we're not afraid of you. They really had no power in themselves. And why is that? They were using the name of Jesus. They were trying to use the power of Jesus, but they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't have a relationship with Jesus. They wanted the power that Jesus had, but they didn't know who Jesus was as the Son of God. And so look at what happens to them. In verse 16, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered them and overpowered them, so they fled out of that house naked and wounded. So this man starts attacking them, he starts beating them, and they run out of the house without any of their clothes. And look at verse 17, it says, And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. Yeah, I think if this happened in Trafalgar, if someone heard that this event had happened with demons and demons chasing someone and they were running out of a house with no clothes on, I think all of Trafalgar would be afraid as well. But this word for fear isn't just like being afraid of a monster in a closet, but it was a sense of reverence. It's a sense of respect 
respect for the Lord. You see, what happens here, even as these false teachers are rebuked, even as they are ran out by this demon, there starts to become more of an emphasis on the power of God. These priests thought that they had the power of God, but they're trying to use it for their own gain. The true power of God can't be bought. We've seen that in Acts. But it is something that God, through his sovereignty and through his providence, does. There was nothing special about Paul. There was nothing about the name of Paul, Paul's clothes, the things that Paul did that enabled him to have this ministry. It was because he knew God. It was because he was a believer in Jesus Christ. It was because God had given them him this ministry to do. And so look at the response of this. It says, This became known in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So God takes this really weird event, this really strange story, and he uses it to cause more reverence and fear to come to himself. And the name of Christ is praised, is magnified. God receives glory from this event. And this event actually leads to a revival in the city. Look at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. So these believers, not just unbelievers, but believers in Ephesus who had been living in sin, repented. And as they saw this, they realized that just because they know Jesus doesn't mean they can continue in sin. And they start confessing their sin. They start getting rid of their practices. There's a special emphasis on magic here. Look at verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Ephesus, as we'll see in the next sermon in a couple weeks, it was a city focused on magic and spiritual power, and it worshipped the Greek goddess Athena. And even Christians fell subject and became ensnared in this trap where they were practicing dark arts, fortune-telling, trying to do magic, even though they knew that Christ was Savior. We get the idea here that they're doing these things in secret. It says that they come forward. Often these magic practices would happen behind closed doors where people wouldn't really know that they were doing them. It says they came forward and they confessed their sins to all. And they burned all of their books that they had. And it was quite the sum of money that was, that was burned here. It says, they took all their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, in our currency today, probably one piece of silver would be like a day's wage for a person then. And so this would be the equivalent of 50,000 days wages or 150 people working an entire year. This was quite the sum of money that was burned up here. And it shows us two things. Number one, they spent a lot of money on these evil practices. This was something that had a stronghold in their life. And number two, the money didn't matter to them. You say, well, why didn't they just sell the books? Why didn't they just sell the magic books to other people or all these other things. They could have put it on Amazon or Facebook Marketplace and still made money back on it. This was something that was evil. And what these believers said was, we don't care about the money. 
We're going to burn this. We're going to get rid of these evil practices. And we don't want anything else to do with it. We don't want any money that comes from it. And we don't want anyone else to be involved in this practice as well. And this is a beautiful picture of repentance. Repentance does not say, what can I get away with? What's the least amount that I can be sorry for something? What's the least amount that I can give up and still be happy? Repentance says, when you turn from your sin, when you turn from your sin towards Christ, it gives all to Jesus. It's a complete turnaround. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect, but it means that you're going in the other direction. And what they're saying is there's nothing off limits. There's no amount of money that's off limits. There's no amount of secrets that are off limits. This probably would have been embarrassing for these believers. They said, you know what? It doesn't matter. We're going to make this right. We see genuine, complete repentance from these believers in Ephesus, and they turn from their sin, and they turn towards Christ. And look at what happens in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. God's word is proclaimed, it's magnified, it is spread as this stronghold of dark magic is burned away, literally. The word of God multiplies and the church in Ephesus is strengthened. And for three years this happens as Paul is there. Like I said, I think this is the high point in his ministry. We see in this last point, we should sharply rebuke false teachers. And this takes discernment as well. This doesn't mean that we go protest outside of a church where we don't think they preach the gospel. This does mean that we stand up for the truth of God's word. Now notice that Paul didn't have to confront these people who were the exorcists. This was something that God did on his own. We know that ultimately vengeance is the Lord. There may be some false teachers that preach a false gospel today and they never get what's coming to them until God comes back. We know that everything is in the power and the strength of the Lord. But we should still sharply stand up for the truth of God's word. There is a difference between someone who is just confused theologically and someone who doesn't know what the gospel is. There's a difference between someone who's just an unbeliever, they don't understand the gospel, and someone who is trying to preach a false gospel. Anyone who is trying to preach, anyone who is trying to say this is the word of the Lord, they had better understand the gospel. They had better know what Christ has done for sin. So we see that we should sharply rebuke false teachers. And this takes grace. This takes discernment. This takes wisdom. None of us are sufficient on our own. So how can we understand? How can we have wisdom? How can we have discernment? It comes from the word of God. The word of God guides us. The word of God shows us how we should live. The word of God instructs us on how we can be believers, how we can have discernment. When I was a freshman in college, I was trying to find a place to get a cheap haircut I didn't want to spend the $20, $25 that it would cost for me to cut my hair. So I went to someone in the dorm. He would cut people's hair for like $5, $10. And he gave me a haircut, and I just really didn't like it. So I had a friend who said, I can cut your hair shorter if you want. And I foolishly believed that he could. 
And he said, I'm just going to use this, not razor, but this shaver. And he said, I'll, I'll, I'll make it short, but I'll leave a little bit on top. I'm going to put it on a three. I didn't understand the different lengths of the um, guards that he used. And as he shaved my head, literally, he took one swipe through my hair and all of my hair was gone. Like I just had like this much left on top of my head. And at that moment, I mean, I had a big strike through my head. There was nothing more I could do about it. But I realized I had made a huge mistake. I'd gone to someone who really didn't understand anything about what it meant to cut hair. And at that point, he just had to shave the rest of my head. So I spent the last couple months of school with a beanie on top of my head. I would take it off for class and I would put it back on when I would walk around. And I pretty much just lived in the shadows for a couple months until my hair finally grew back in enough where I thought it was presentable. And you know what I did after that? I went and got a good haircut. And I said, the only people that are going to touch my hair are people that know what they're doing and what a good haircut actually is. In the same way, we should be careful about people who say they understand the gospel, who say they're going to preach God's word. There are many out there in the world who claim to be pastors, who claim to understand the word of God, and they're preaching a false gospel. We should be careful. We should always measure them up to the word of God. As we close this morning, let's ask ourselves these final four questions. First of all, Am I gentle in restoring believers? Am I gentle in restoring believers? This takes restraint. Sometimes we can become passionate. But are we gentle in restoring believers? Speaking the truth in love. Taking them aside. Showing them a better, more accurate way. Secondly, am I honest in addressing sin? As I said earlier, you're probably going to fall into one of two categories You either need to be more gentle in restoring someone who's a believer or you need to be more honest and show them the truth. Just because you're telling someone something that's hard, just because you're speaking the truth to them, doesn't mean that you're not loving them. In fact, loving someone in Christ is telling them something that they need to hear. Are you honest in addressing sin? Thirdly, am I careful in witnessing to the lost? Do I use God's word? Do I navigate through these different issues? Maybe as you've witnessed to someone, you've realized this. Sometimes it's not the people who don't know anything about God that are the hardest to witness to. Sometimes it's the people who have been led astray, who maybe have some idea of church, but it's been a church that preaches a false gospel. And you have to take their past and show them what Christianity actually is. Are you careful in witnessing to the lost? And lastly, are you courageous in defending the truth. We trust the Lord and his wisdom. We're going to make mistakes. We're not going to do things right. We're going to have to apologize. But it takes wisdom and maturity and discernment to discern through these different areas of theological confusion. And so we ask God for his grace and his help to help us during these times. And we know that he will provide and it will be his gospel that is preached and not our own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've led in our lives. God, we need wisdom for how we deal with these different issues. So help us to have that wisdom. We know that wisdom, true wisdom comes from above and you give it to us freely. So help us to use that wisdom in our lives today. In Christ's name, amen.